Thank you, Gene. How true. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. What great, great words. And, you know, I just keep having to add to my little book of firsts in ministry uh, the average age of those attending children's time on a Sunday morning uh, went up drastically this morning. And uh, so I'm just going to add that to my list of firsts, you know. Never experienced that before. But boy, he paid attention, didn't he? And Brent did a good job. Let's pause for a moment of prayer and reflection and meditation, shall we? Opening our spirits to the Holy Spirit of God for a time of silence and then I'll lead us. We offer to you, our loving and caring shepherd and God, our concerns and our burdens. For those who are ill in our congregation, for those who are grieving, for those who are struggling with life's basic necessities, for those who are having family conflict and job-related stress, we pray on behalf of our own lives as we seek a closer walk with you and hunger to know you more deeply. We pray that you'll hear our acknowledgement of sin and need and brokenness as we cry out to you and seek to uh, know your fullness and your filling in a special way. We do remember to pray for our South Dakota mission team and for our partners there that the blessings might flow in both directions and be very rich. We pray for all of our youth and children's programs and ministries and vacation Bible camp coming very soon and all of the preparation in the hearts of the boys and girls and families as well as in the hearts and lives of those who will be leading. We pray on behalf of those many, many victims of storms, those who've lost loved ones, those who have lost homes, those who've lost hope, that we pray that you might bless all in the recovery work and the rebuilding work. Lord, as you enter our lives, there's not a day that goes by without your unfolding grace Your never-failing providence is always with us. Your mighty hands hold us, loving us and caring for us in ways we don't even understand. But we look to you with thanksgiving, praying that you'll open our minds and open our hearts to the truth you have for us this morning through your spoken word and through the enacted word of the Lord's Supper. Be magnified, be glorified, we pray, in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Luke, the seventh chapter, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, the first ten verses. Uh, Humility is a word that's probably tough to define. And as Brent said in the children's time, uh, being submissive is a concept that's a little difficult to describe. And yet, uh, we are surprised sometimes where we find examples of humility and submission, and Jesus himself was surprised where he found an example of humility and submission. So we're going to read that story, and I invite you to stand and come to attention as God's Word comes among us. Luke 7, 1 and following. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. 
A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I, do, uh, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. May God bless this word to our hearts. You may be seated. The centurion of Jesus' day was probably one that we would call mid-management. He was uh, a person who had lots of people under him and lots of people over him. That's a a picture of how historians believe centurions were dressed uh, in Jesus' day. Roman centurion in charge of between 80 and 100 soldiers. Centurion, century, 100, that's how he got his name. Uh, he was probably working there along the border. Capernaum was along the northern edge of uh, the Palestine region. It was a regional border, and so he probably was there to enforce the law concerning tax collection. He was probably there to enforce the law concerning census taking as people left the region and came back to the region. And so he found his job there. He found his niche. He found his place doing his work. But what do we know about the centurion personally? We know some generic things about centurions, Roman centurions in a general way, but what about this particular centurion? What do we know about him? Well, first of all, it's pretty obvious that he's generous and he is a man of integrity because the Jews are speaking to Jesus on his behalf, saying, Jesus, help this man and help this man's slave because this is a good man. Now, do you... Do you catch the incongruity of that? The despised Roman occupation was taking place in Palestine. The Romans were there with their heels on the neck of the Israelites. And by and large, the Roman soldiers were despised because of their brutality, because of their their cruelty, because of their violence. And yet here the Jews, who are the ones whose land is occupied, are saying to Jesus... Help this Roman soldier. He's a good man. He's helped us build our synagogue. He's helped the financing or he's helped in the building of it in some fashion. So that tells you a lot about him, doesn't it? We also know that this centurion was humble. He practiced a very genuine humility because he said to Jesus, You know, Jesus, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. Now, that's pretty amazing. Someone has said that this Roman centurion knew that orders come in two directions. They go from him to people beneath him, but they also come from higher up 
to him. In other words, he knows how to give orders and he knows how to take orders. He is a man who understands perfectly well that militarily he is superior to Jesus, politically he is superior to Jesus, and yet he acknowledges that Jesus is his superior. An amazing acknowledgement for a Roman soldier. He acknowledges that Jesus has a place above him. He, he doesn't treat Jesus like his lackey. He doesn't treat Jesus like his gopher. He doesn't look down his nose at Jesus and start ordering Jesus around. In other words, he treats Jesus with respect and says, I, I know who you are and I'm not worthy that you come into my house. Uh, let me um, draw the picture a little more dramatically. Any Roman born into this world was born uh, with, an, with an awareness of an overarching life story or narrative. In fact, we're all born into a, uh, an overarching narrative, a story about who we are, what our nation is, and our place in the world, and what our world is like. We're all born with that. It's ingested through school. It's ingested through church. It's ingested through patriotic celebrations and holidays and everything else. Romans were born with an awareness of an overarching narrative that defined their lives. And, and here's basically how the average Roman, especially Roman soldier, uh, understood his narrative, his, his life story. Rome is the center of the world. Rome is superior to every other culture. There is no way of life that is equal to Rome. They are all inferior. Might makes right. We are strong. We are militarily superior. Therefore, we will do as we please and we will enforce our ways by strength and sheer force. That's the overarching narrative. And there was an overarching narrative in the Roman life, especially for the military, regarding religion. The Roman soldier was expected to worship the emperor. Caesar is Lord. That was their, that was their mantra. That was their worship. Caesar is Lord. Now we begin to understand why early Christians who, who said the words, Jesus is Lord, were in danger of their lives because they were declaring a different Lord. But the soldiers would declare and worship Jesus as Lord. And they believed that as they worshipped, they would say Caesar is Lord. As they worshipped Caesar, they believed that the gods or the spirits would protect them in battle. Now, understanding how the average Roman soldier grew up with that overarching narrative of life, that story that they told themselves, can you begin to see how this Roman centurion has begun to shed that overarching narrative, that life story, and he's begun to adopt a different life story, a different narrative. He's beginning to understand there is a God greater than Caesar. Jesus is Lord. He's beginning to think about the fact that perhaps there are other people in the world who are special and who are loved. He's beginning to think about the fact that maybe everybody's special and to be cared about. And he's beginning to think maybe there's another way besides violence and force. That maybe besides the love of power, there is the power of love. 
All of this has no doubt been churning around in his mind for him to ever say to Jesus, I'm not worthy that you would come into my house. All you have to do is speak the word. Authority is a huge theme in this passage of Scripture. Because the Roman centurion says, Jesus, I acknowledge your power. I understand authority in such a way that you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is speak the word. Verse 7, only speak the word and let my servant be healed. He understood authority. Now, in case you hadn't noticed it, some of us have trouble with authority. Some of us in the United States who really love our independence and our personal liberties, we have trouble with authority. That's kind of how our nation was founded, right? We had trouble with monarchy. But at a personal level, we struggle with authority. Have you ever said or have you ever thought about someone else? Who are you to tell me what to do? Who says I have to do that? Who died and made you king? A man came home from work one day and when he walked through the door, he sensed tension. Tension. His wife had this grim expression like she was just about to explode, daring him to say the wrong thing. And he looked at his nine-year-old child and boy, there was, there was not happiness there. And he looked at his six-year-old child, no happiness there. And the third-year-old child was wagging his finger at the dog, chewing out the dog. You ever walked into those kind of situations? And finally, the man cornered his wife in the kitchen. He said, what's going on? She said, oh, uh, we, had, we had a little meeting. Your three children were getting a little too high and mighty. She said, you just had your three little CEOs demoted to mid-management. And sometimes, you know, in parenting, you have to have de- some demotion ceremonies from CEOs to mid-management. And so, something for us to think about, if the centurion could come to that understanding, what about us? No matter how big a deal you are at work, Jesus is still Lord of your life. No matter how big a deal we are in the community, or at school, or in church, or in civic groups, or in our home, or in our own estimation, Jesus is still Lord of our lives. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget. And and that plays itself out in hundreds of daily interactions, learning to be submissive to Jesus, and then to learn to practice mutual submission to one another. It plays out in marriage. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had men love to quote to me and to their wives, Ephesians 5.22. You know that verse. Some of you men have it memorized. Wives, be be subject to your husbands. But they forget, and I love to point out to them, that that passage doesn't really begin in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. It begins in verse 21. Because verse 21 says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Before we ask anyone else to be subject to us, we practice genuine mutual submission to one another. 
That's the way our faith is lived out. That's how church works. That's how families work. That's how relationships work. That's how we learn to get along in life is through mutual submission. Richard Foster, uh, who's written a great book on celebration of discipline, uh, has this great line, Submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. Wow. That's a terrible burden. The submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always having to get our way. And, and it's a terrible load to carry around, to have to always be right, to have to always be in control. And uh, Foster goes on to say that there's a lot of freedom that comes when we can get freed up from that. Actually, this theme of submission is also embedded in our very understanding of saving faith. Saving faith is coming to Jesus Christ, but saving faith is also repenting and coming to Jesus Christ. And embedded in repentance is submission, to say, I'm not Lord of my own life. I'm going to scoot over and let Jesus have the control panel. I'm going to scoot over and let Jesus drive the car of my life. I'm going to get out of the the driver's seat and let someone else greater than me drive my life. And so sometimes when we say, that someone's not understanding the gospel, what we really mean is they're not standing under the gospel. You know, is it a matter that you don't understand it or you just don't want to submit and stand under it? But here's the beauty. When we submit, when we allow our pride to be broken and we submit, amazing blessings flow into our lives. The grace of God flows into our lives when we can practice submission. God's love flows into our lives. And anyone, anyone, anyone can experience this. Even Roman soldiers, Gentiles, those outside the holy family, those who are not the stamped and approved. High class, low class, no class. The clued in and the clueless. Everybody's included in this opportunity when we submit and we open up, then God's grace flows. It's very interesting to me that in verse 4, the Jews said of this centurion, he is worthy to Jesus. They said he is worthy. And then two verses later, the centurion says to Jesus, I'm not worthy. Did you catch that? They say he's worthy. He says I'm not worthy. Well, guess what? Jesus says, it doesn't matter. God loves everyone. All you have to do is acknowledge your need. You have to submit. You have to open. And Jesus says, when we open up, God can pour His blessing in. God can pour His blessing in.